0: Thank Beth Mercer. Beth, thank you for leading us today. In Philip's absence, he is at a family wedding this weekend, and you and the choir and Ashley, thank you. Y'all did a beautiful job of that piece today, and it's one of my favorites. So thank you. And Kate, she is at Eagle Irie with Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia this weekend. So we will be praying for Philip and Kate as they are away, and look forward to having them back very soon. It's interesting that Amanda talked about how long children can sit in one place and listen to the sermon, for instance. Well, my watch broke and so actually the band just broke and it fell off my arm. So I have half of a wristband up here today. So I'm going to put my watch there and maybe, well, I don't know that we can do 11 minutes, but maybe we can watch our time today as we go through the message. I'm going to read our text from Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase of the Bible. The words will be on the screen. Feel free to follow along in your own Bible and you can see the nuances or differences in the way that the scripture is translated. Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 46. Jesus is speaking. It's the last week of his life, early in the week, and the specific audience are the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus says, Here's another story. Listen closely. There once was a man, a wealthy farmer, who planted a vineyard, he fenced it, dug a wine press, put up a watchtower, then turned it over to the farmhands and went off on a trip. When it was time to harvest the grapes, he sent his servants back to collect his profits. The farmhands grabbed the first servant and beat him up. The next one they murdered, they threw stones at the third, but he got away. The owner tried again, sending more servants. They got the same treatment. The owner was at the end of his rope. He decided to send his son. Surely, he thought, they will respect my son. But when the farmhands saw the son arrive, they rubbed their hands in greed. This is the heir. Let's kill him and have it all for ourselves. They grabbed him, threw him out, and killed him. Jesus asks them this question. Now, when the owner of the vineyard arrives home from his trip, what do you think he will do to the farmhands? They replied, he'll kill them. A rotten bunch and good riddance, they answered. Then he'll assign the vineyard to farmhands who will hand over the prophets when it's time. Jesus said, write, and you can read it for yourselves in your own Bibles. The stone the masons threw out is now the cornerstone. This is God's work. We rub our eyes. We can hardly believe it. And he said to them, this is the way it is with you. God's kingdom will be taken back from you and handed over to a people Who will live out a kingdom life? Whoever stumbles on this stone gets shattered. Whoever the stone falls on gets smashed. Well, when the religious leaders heard this story, they knew it was aimed at them. They wanted to arrest Jesus and put him in jail, but intimidated by public opinion, they held back. Most people held him to be a prophet of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And God's people said, Amen. Sometimes conflicts between people can really get out of hand. It's sort of like a spark that ignites a wildfire. You've seen it out in the West. You've seen the news reports. Before too long, the small spark or the cigarette that's thrown aside the road is out of control. Maybe for you, that conflict is an angry customer in your workplace. And no matter what you say or do, you just can't please them. You can't make them happy. Maybe it's your boss Maybe it's the coworker in the cubicle near you and there's an issue and nothing you say can satisfy. Or maybe it's your marriage if you're married. Your marriage might be like an off-balance washing machine when it's on spin cycle. Even churches can get upset about stuff. Conflict happens, and in my experience almost in 20 years of ministry, it's not usually about theology. Usually it's about things like finances, worship style, worship time, where we worship, how we worship, the rooms we use in the church, unrealistic expectations of clergy, those kinds of things. Conflict can get out of control if it's not dealt with appropriately, biblically. Even neighbors can get in conflicts with each other. I read earlier this summer about two neighbors in a Chesterfield County development who are now in a legal battle. Apparently for like nine years, they have been at odds with one another and it all came to a head when allegedly the son of one neighbor and maybe he had a helper toilet papered the other one's house and now they're embroiled in a lawsuit. Why can't people just work things out? And then there's the neighbor that I read about out on the west coast, two neighbors actually, and one of the neighbors was so upset because the other neighbor didn't mow his lawn enough and the lawn was really tall that he put a sign in front of his own house that said for sale by owner and below that it said Because my neighbor is a blankety blank. Not only was that sign in the front of the house, but a second identical sign was out behind the house, just happened to be on the fairway of the golf course they overlooked, and when golfers came by, they took photos of it with their phone and posted them, and it went viral. Now, those people are involved in a lawsuit. No one likes conflict. We get upset and distracted. We stew over the situation. It can consume us and distract us from what God really wants us to do in life. I say all of these things to preface the text we are reading today, that Jesus had conflict with the religious authorities of Israel from the very get-go of his ministry. Those after him were among the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, Right after the call of Matthew as a disciple, for example, where Jesus had dinner with the scum of society, tax collectors and other sinners, prostitutes, he was getting a hard time from the religious leaders. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus was hanging out with the, quote, wrong people of society. Soon, Jesus was doing so uh, other so-called inappropriate things to offend the Pharisees. He violated the Sabbath regulations that they were imposing upon the people. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And as early as Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees were conspiring with other religious leaders of how to destroy this Jesus. In other words, they were out to kill him from the very beginning. I wonder if Jesus knew how intense their hatred of him really was. So our immediate context is Jesus and the courts of the temple early in the Holy Week. That's early in the last week of Jesus' life. In choir, you might say, Pastor Bob, why are we in a text in the Holy Week in the fall? What's the point? When we look at the Christian year, and we walk through the parables of Matthew as we are doing under the the lectionary, which is a three-year guide of Bible preaching and teaching, we see that we cannot isolate these texts just to the Holy Week, but rather when they speak of the kingdom of God, it compels us to focus on the kingdom of God all year long. And these, uh, the sequence of parables that we've been studying in Sunday school and in church helps uh, to compel us to keep the kingdom of God and what that really means for us in 2017 in front of our eyes all of the time. Three years had passed in Jesus' ministry and the conflict that he was experiencing had grown more and more intense. And if you read Matthew 21 through 24, you'll see that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees reaches epic proportions. One commentator says there are some 13 different incidents of a growing conflict and tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Just in those three chapters. This is the final week of his ministry. Jesus continues to relentlessly preach what is right and just and true. Jesus spoke in parables to help those religious leaders to see their offensive ways. Maybe, just maybe, with the Holy Spirit at work, they would humble themselves and repent and change of their wicked ways. Jesus comes in and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He said that temple leaders had made God's temple into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus came out of the temple and saw a fig tree in leaf but not in bloom and cursed the tree and said, basically helping us to see that the Pharisees were like a tree, green and lush with absolutely no fruit to bear. Jesus told the Pharisees that the tax collectors and prostitutes would get into heaven before they did. I'm sure that went over really well. He called them a bunch of hypocrites. The Pharisees were the symbolic children of those who killed the prophets in the Old Testament, and they killed John the Baptist, and they were going to kill Jesus as well. Jesus did not spare truth. Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26 help give us some background. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, Jeremiah writes, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Speaking of the religious leaders even in that day. And then in Matthew, at the end of the Beatitudes in chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are when people insult you or persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. And one other verse is as Stephen testifies before Saul, who would be the Apostle Paul, and those who are persecuting him, getting ready to stone him. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? The messengers God sent. Is there ever one of those you didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, speaking of Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. So you can see the past history that has culminated up until the present day of Jesus there in the temple. Jesus speaks to... a a greater context as well. He speaks to the disobedience of Israel and how its leaders in particular have ignored and persecuted and killed the prophets. It also applied to the church that Matthew was addressing that day in that time period later in the first century. And the parable also speaks to us as Christians today. As we live as God's kingdom people, we must be compelled to stop and listen to the voices God uses. Often we don't want to hear it, and often these voices are from overlooked people in unexpected places from different walks of life. So let's unpack Jesus' parable briefly and then look at how he in a prophetic voice confronts the Pharisees once again, and I believe that there's a message for us in this. By the way, I have never preached from this passage before, um, it's hard. If you've read it, if you've been in Sunday school hearing it, if you're a Sunday school teacher and you're teaching it, this is not easy. And it's more comfortable for us to look at one of the other texts for that particular Sunday. The alternative Old Testament reading for today is the Ten Commandments. We know that one, don't we? Right? We, we, we could have gone there today and had a nice message and, and avoided this parable. But these are words of Jesus too. And so we, we've got we've to gotta look at the, the whole of the canon as we go through month to month, year to year as God's people. So the setting here is Jesus giving this parable to these religious leaders. And he's using the illustration of a vineyard. And in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as God's vineyard. And there was responsibility given to those who were to steward it, to lead it. Those religious leaders, and they had disobeyed and they had failed in their responsibility. And Jesus, he comes to them and he, and he says, let me tell you another story. Listen closely. There once was a man, a wealthy farmer who planted a vineyard. Back then, if you often were a landowner, you would plant your vineyard, and then you would lease it out to tenants, and you might go off on a journey. You might have other business ventures to take care of. So here on the screens, you see uh, some photos of a Palestinian vineyard. It would have had walls around it to secure it, or in most cases, hedges, uh, thick thorny hedge bushes that would have kept wild boar and other predators and thieves from coming in to steal the produce. There was a wine press hewn out of stone there, and if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you've seen these, but the uh, wine press would have uh, been a, a shallower area hewn, and all the grapes would be put in there, and then the workers would stomp on the grapes and the juice would flow through a channel that would drop down to a lower pool where all of the juice would collect and then it it would be stored in, in clay vessels and it would ferment and then the wine would be sold. This landowner planted the vineyard, he had all the people involved to do that and then he went away. It would have taken several years for the first harvest to even come. So this was a long journey. And instead of coming back himself the first time, he sent his servants to collect from the tenants. When they came, you heard, read in the parable, the tenants who were responsible for the vineyard killed the servants. The landowner said, well, let me try again. And he sent more servants, and the same thing happened. These servants illustrate the prophets of Israel, that God would say, the, these, these people are not being responsible. I'm going to send these prophets, and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to keep trying. Nothing worked. Finally, the landowner said, I'm going to send my son. Surely they will revere him. Surely they will respect my son when I send him, and he will be able to collect That which is due, his portion of the produce. Well, Jesus says in the parable, they killed the son too. This parable is an allegory. The landowner is God, the tenants are the Pharisees who are responsible for overseeing and producing fruit, the servants are God's prophets. And the landowner's son, well, we see that as Jesus himself. And Jesus is bringing an indictment on religion that has failed. People who have not obeyed God. People who claim to be religious, claim to be followers of God, but had produced no fruit or had produced the wrong kind of fruit. This is a parable of judgment. And at the end of the parable, the Pharisees who heard it knew exactly what Jesus said was talking about. They knew that it was about them. And Jesus is saying, folks, there are going to be others now who are going to be stewarding this vineyard. They are the least expected. They are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They are the people that you have overlooked, that you have criticized. There is going to be a new day. There will be Jewish people. There will be Gentile people all together stewarding this vineyard, being responsible for this vineyard, producing the fruit that God desires. It's certainly a message they didn't want to hear, but it was a message that they needed to hear. There's an interesting play on words that's happening in the text. The landowner leased the land to tenants. The Greek word implies a giving away. When you lease, you allow someone else to have authority. There's a giving away. The rent that the landowner was looking for was a paying back, They're giving away and a paying back, and when we study this parable, we see that God is giving away authority to his leaders, God is giving away authority to his church, and the the rent, the, the paying back is the fruit, and as Christian people today, we can interpret this parable to say that the paying back to God is the fruit of righteousness. It is serving, it is giving, it is going, it is praying. It's all of these things. God desires for His people to produce fruit. I believe that's what you talked about in some of your Sunday school classes today. Now that you are saved, what are you going to do with what God has given you and me? In Matthew's Gospel, over and again, the answer to that question is that we are to bear fruit. Fruit that will last So there are some questions for all of us to consider today. Number one, who are the messengers God sends to us today? In the old days, the messengers were the prophets who continued to come, and we've already heard what happened to them. Who are the messengers that God sends us today? Young people, I suggest that your parents are messengers, your mom and your dad. People who love you often share things with you that you don't like or don't want to hear but need to hear. Your parents can be those messengers. Your teachers, your Sunday school teachers. It might be your youth pastor, maybe a preacher, or the children's minister, one of the, uh, over the years, people in clergy that have really spoken to you. Maybe it's your grandparents. If you are, are married, it could be your husband or wife. How many of you watch the show, This Is Us? Yeah, we watch that at home. And in the story, This Is Us, which is in its second season, the main character, Jack, has an alcohol problem. And in, I believe, the last episode, he and his wife are dealing with this. And he says, I'm going to have to deal with this alone. And I believe in a prophetic voice, she said, no, Jack, she said, We are going to deal with this together. We've always dealt with our problems together, and this is no different. Spouses, in marriage, often God will speak through one of you to bring prophetic voice to the other. If one of you has a drinking problem, it might be that that spouse says, you've got to start going to a meeting. We've got to beat this. We've got to get through this. It might be that you are a workaholic and your spouse through a prophetic voice says, we've got to make some changes because you're not home enough and the kids are growing up too fast and you're missing out. It might be a close friend. It might be a coach, somebody who speaks a word of God to you. God speaks to us through the Bible and through worship and through prayer, but God speaks also through other people in our relationships and in the church. Who are the messengers God is sending to you? Second question, what is the fruit that God expects from us? It's more than just religion, folks. Fruit is not just attending something or checking a box. Fruit is Spirit-led. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control against such things there is no law fruit is also righteousness what does the lord require of you says the prophet micah to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god and fruit is that which is worthy of repentance matthew 3 8 and then 10 we must bear fruit The good fruit comes from the good tree, and it happens so naturally from believers that we often don't realize we have produced it. The work is of God. But the key to producing good fruit is staying connected and rooted to God. And one other example of this fruit is from Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church. You all have been through that, I know, in the past. And he says that the word fruit is used some 55 times in the New Testament. And there are a variety of results. Some of them are as follows. Repentance. Practicing the truth. Answered prayer. An offering of money or other offering given by believers. Christlike character is that fruit. Or leading unbelievers to Jesus Christ. To a saving relationship, trusting relationship with Jesus Christ. God is so pleased when one turns of their ways and receives him as Savior and Lord. The fruit of a believer is indeed another believer. We believe that. What fruit does God expect of us? And then a couple of questions for application as we close. What is keeping you and me from bearing fruit in the kingdom? I don't know about you, but one of the things I struggle with the most is busyness. Just plain busyness. And what gets edged out? Our time with God. What do you think gets edged out in the pastor's week? What do you think? And any guesses, what gets edged out in my responsibilities in an ongoing week? Family time can, absolutely, yes. But in, in my work, it's the sermon. The temptation is to be so busy and to engage in everything that we feel like we need to, and the sermon can get edged out. And that which God desires for us to hear on Sunday can get pushed out if we're not careful. And so that's a prayer for me. I, I ask you to be, be praying for that. I just wanted to be real with you. <clears throat> Busyness. The, the fear of the unknown. Sometimes we don't engage in something because we're afraid of it. Or there may be people God desires we interface with. Connect with, share with who are from a different religion or culture or race than we are, and we back off because we are uncomfortable and afraid of going there. Or maybe it's distractions or clamoring voices that compete for your attention. Maybe there are prejudices in our past history that keep us from being fruitful. It could be just a plain lack of commitment, thinking, well, somebody else will take that responsibility. I'm not going to worry about it. And then what is keeping our church from bearing fruit, brothers and sisters? What is it? Maybe we expect people to come to us. We've got a beautiful facility. We've got the big steeple on Huguenot Road. We've got the reputation. I've been in Richmond since 1995 when I started seminary. And right away, I heard about Huguenot Road. Some of the students that interned here were in Seminary. You remember Mark Tolly, who was here years ago? I graded his Greek papers. And so I've known about Huguenot Road. It's always had a fine reputation as being a strong church. But listen, having a fine reputation and a, being a strong church and having a big steeple and a large sanctuary and wonderful road frontage is not going to bring people into the kingdom of God. That happens when we invite, when we connect, when we build relationships with people We cannot just rest on our reputation or our physical location or our nice sign and thinking all of these people coming by are just going to come into the parking lot because they want to be here. Have you ever driven up this road? It's running 50 to 55 miles an hour most of the time if you catch the green lights. And I would encourage you or challenge you one day to time how long it takes you to drive past our campus. At 45, that's the limit. Plus, count how many seconds it is if you get the green lights. And you will see quickly that, that just having a nice facility is not going to bring people. You and I are the ones who are called to share God's love with people through Jesus. Through a one-on-one personal relationship, we can invite people here. We can't expect our reputation to do that. We can't leave it all up to the professional clergy. Sometimes we think we're invincible and that we have to do it all, so you have to hold us accountable. But this is a collaborative effort, not something that we just pay people to do. And you know what I think, and I may be wrong here, but just my, my own experience as a moderate Baptist is sometimes we shy away from evangelism because we don't want to offend somebody. So we're going to, we're going to temper it. And you and I don't have to be confrontational to share Jesus. Just live it. Just live it. Allow God to produce fruit through you. We need to have a clear vision and focus. Congregational identity is important. Who are we? Who are we called to be in this place, in this community? And how are we the unique presence of Jesus Christ in the North Chesterfield area and in metropolitan Richmond? Those are questions that we are seeking to continue to discover as we go along as leaders in our church. And finally, sometimes we are kept from bearing fruit in God's kingdom because we try to be all things to all people, a mile wide and an inch deep. Folks, we cannot do it all. It's better to do a few things really well than try to do a whole lot of things mediocre. What's the best? Those are questions I'd invite you to pray about. And we're doing that as leaders, too, as we go through this this discussion on what we call simple church, trying to determine what is best for HRBC for the days to come. The other day, well, I guess a week or so ago, our family went out to Carter's uh, Mountain in Charlottesville, and we picked apples, and we are so thankful that the owners of Carter's Mountain didn't hoard the apples just for themselves. Fruit is meant to be shared, right? We are called to produce fruit for the kingdom of God, good fruit, the fruit of righteousness, and it's to be shared. My, I'm so glad that they didn't keep it all to themselves. Let's pray. Lord, help us as stewards of your vineyard to be faithful, to seek righteousness, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we seek to live in the kingdom of God. We can't do that on our own. We must surrender to you and simply obey. Help us to put aside all of the distractions so that we might hear your clear voice, the messengers that you send and the message they have as we face the future as your people. In Jesus' name.